Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. There's a children's story called A Tale of Two Beasts, where a little girl um, rescues a little beast out in the woods that is stuck and crying for help in this tree. And uh, she catches this little beast and she wraps it up in her scarf and she takes it home and she makes it her pet, right? Like every little girl would. This poor creature out in the woods. And she, she makes a nice little home for it in a box and feeds it and takes it on walks and she shows it off to all of her friends. And then one day she uh, left the window open and the little beast uh, runs out the window and it just leaves this little girl so puzzled. What's wrong with this beast? I tried to help it and it runs away. Well, then the story shifts in the middle of the book to tell the beast's point of view. And uh, to the beast, he says, one day I was just hanging out in my favorite tree in the forest, uh, singing right along with the birds, having a good old time when suddenly a large beast ambushed me, (laughs) snuck up behind me and tied me up and uh, took me to their lair (laughs) where they proceeded to feed me awful food and shove me in this box and parade me before other beasts. And then one day, I was able to escape her clutches, those evil clutches. I ran out of the window. Well, perspective matters, doesn't it? Perspective matters, and uh, especially when we're going through a tough time in our lives, and uh, we're going through some sort of difficult or confusing or undesirable situation. How do we see it, and then... How does God see it? That's sort of what we're going to talk about today. As we pick up our study in Acts chapter 18, Paul is in the city of Corinth near the end of a long, hard second missionary journey, and he needs a perspective other than his own, other than just looking at the difficulties around him, to keep going, to keep, keep advancing the gospel. So um, first we're going to look at the long stay at Corinth in verses 1 through 17. But uh, after these things, verse 1, after these things he left Athens and he went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila and a native, a native of Pontus having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and they were working For by trade they were tent makers, and he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. So let's pause there. Paul now moves on from from Athens to Corinth alone. 
He's still alone. Silas and Timothy remained at Berea, and uh, they were there just helping to establish the church, but Paul was pretty much kicked out of town. Corinth, however, was located uh, 40 miles um, west of Athens. It was the capital of this province known as Achaia, Achaia, something like that. Uh, It's the southern portion of Greece, Macedonia in the north, Achaia in the south. And uh, historians estimate the population here to be around uh, 200,000 in the first century. So this is a pretty significant city. And just to give you an idea what that's like, uh, Rome was about 1.2 million. Um, Alexandria down in Egypt, 600,000. Ephesus, 250,000. Jerusalem, about 80,000. And Athens, around 30,000. Um, Athens, again, was on the decline because they'd been conquered by Rome and uh, just had been refounded, basically. But uh, same with Corinth. Corinth was uh, located uh, in a very unique location on this little neck of land called an isthmus, like one of the hardest words to say in the English dictionary, an isthmus. You guys ever learn what an isthmus is? Isthmus, right? Um, it's just fun to say uh, or try to say. But this is the little neck of land right there that connects this uh, Peloponnesian Peninsula. You've heard of the Peloponnesian Wars, right? Peloponnesian Peninsula with the mainland of Greece. And as you can imagine, this little tiny strip of land in there became very strategic for commerce and trade and travel, warfare going back and forth on the land. Um, You've got right through there a little... uh, a little strait, basically, that takes you from the Ionian or Adriatic Sea on the west to the Aegean Sea on the east. And uh, rather than sail 200 miles, right, all the way around here in this treacherous Cape of Malaya, uh, people would rather travel through this little, little strait, this little corridor here. And um, it's a three-and-a-half-mile strip of land. And several leaders, several emperors, such as Nero, tried to dig a canal through this strip of land. It's pure rock, so um, they, they were very unsuccessful. It wasn't until the, the invention of dynamite uh, that this canal was finished in 1893. So it took about 2,500 years from the conception of the idea to the actual completion of it. But uh, one of the greatest archaeological finds that, uh, that, we, that support the Bible is this inscription known as the Erastus uh, Stone uh, in, in Corinth. This is near the Corinthian Theater. This is really neat. Uh, Erastus paved this with his own money um, for, the, for the treasurers, basically. In Romans 16.23, Paul mentions this guy, Erastus, the treasurer for Corinth. And then there's a stone bearing his name that calls him the treasurer. And he paved, he used his own money to pave some of that, uh, that ground there. So um, there's also a door lentil that you can see here that uh, basically says synagogue of the Hebrews. And then there's also some Jewish menorahs there. So it's pretty evident that the Jewish population uh, it was pretty significant here. But I mentioned that, all of that, just because the archaeology is just so faith-affirming for us. Uh, It affirms the truth of the Bible that we just read all of that. But uh, Corinth was home also to the Isthmian Games, much like the Olympics, a little smaller version. That stadium's not Corinth. It's just an idea of how much 
Let's try that again. Uh, these Isthmian Games were held every other year uh, with competitions in all sorts of different athletic events, boxing and discus and races. They had equestrian, right, horse races. They had music competitions. And just like, anyway, people were obsessed with sports. Uh, just like they are today, the city would swell um, with crowds from all over the world during the games. But there's another major characteristic Corinth was known for, and that is its immorality. Uh, when you read the letters, First and Second Corinthians, Anyway, what went on in this city would make a sailor blush. And there were a lot of sailors here that were coming and going. And many have likened this city to the Las Vegas of its day. The city slogan was, not everyone can afford a trip to Corinth, because they were all about, uh, you know what. And the poet Horace called this a town where only the tough survive. Only the tough survive. And that's a helpful connecting thought, because by the time Paul arrives here, uh, he has been through a tough journey. Paul is, remember, he's nearing the end of a long second missionary journey. He's tired. He's alone. He's short on provisions. He's having to work. He's been beaten and persecuted, no doubt looking over his shoulder for the next attacker. Everywhere he goes, someone is after his life. How would you like to live with that? Just waiting for someone to come after you. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 2-3, Paul says he was with them in weakness and fear and much trembling. So there's a lot of scriptural clues that just indicate Paul was very weary here. Kind of like the statue of this boxer in the games. I mean, he just kind of has a weary and dazed look about him, like how many more rounds, right? How much time is left on the clock? Uh, that's kind of, I don't want to over-psychoanalyze Paul, but this just, to me, looking at the scriptural clues, this kind of seems like this is where he was at. And this is why when he writes to Philippians or Corinthians, he goes into the mindset of a, a competitor in the games who's wore out. And he's saying, I'm going I'm to press on anyway. I'm going to press on in this upward call. I'm going, to, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep looking for the eternal, the prize. I'm going to discipline my body and keep going. And uh, that seems to be his mindset. And, you know, when you're down and out like that, you know what's really helpful is some friends. And thankfully, Paul finds some friends uh, who are of the same tent-making trade as him, Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, this couple, this married couple along with uh, many other Jews were relocated here uh, after being driven out of Rome uh, by a decree from Claudius for causing riots in the city. And the historian Suetonius recorded this imperial edict that uh, Luke mentioned uh, in, Luke, or in Acts chapter 18, saying, Since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he expelled them from Rome. So all the Jews got kicked out of Rome. Maybe they, they estimate 50,000 Jews. And uh, many think Crestus was probably a misspelling of Christus with an I, uh, and um, that it's actually a reference to Jesus Christ. It could have been to a Jewish activist, but many think it's a reference to Christ. Even if it was an activist, right, he's probably rebelling against the gospel. Because everywhere Paul went, isn't that what we see? 
The Jews keep rebelling against the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see it right here in the same context in Acts chapter 18. So that, to me, just it seems like Luke is using it here in correlation with an uprising of the Jews in Corinth. Because that's just what happened in Rome. And that's how Aquila and Priscilla ended up here. Uh, but in Corinth, there seems to be a theme that God is using unforeseen unexpected and undesirable circumstances for the advancement of the gospel. Okay, the, the undesirable from our perspective. Uh, think of Aquila and Priscilla. The, they end up here as a result of unforeseen, unexpected, undesirable circumstances. They just got kicked out of Rome, and they end up in Corinth of all places, just the place that you want to be, right? Uh, Surrounded by a complete pagan Gentile. Just, just totally, totally immoral place. They would not feel welcome here. And um, yet in God's providence, look at this, he uses it. He uses it for them to meet Paul and become lifelong friends of Paul and ministry partners. And they're a great encouragement to him. And they're a model couple who give their home and their work and their marriage to the Lord, and the Lord uses this couple greatly. I can't wait to, to meet them in heaven someday and talk to them. And I, I just want to know a quick principle here, and it's that uh, we should seek to be an encouragement to someone going through something tough, going through something difficult. Encourage them, pray for them, help them with their needs, ask how you can help, maybe open your home to them. That's what I think of when I think of Aquila and Priscilla being this great, uh, great friends to Paul. Um, when things get tough, isn't this what you need? You need a good friend. You need, to, you need a good friend, and we need to be friends to others who are going through difficulties. Part of the reason we need godly friends is because they can speak truth into our lives. And they can be a listening ear. Sometimes when you're, you're going through something tough, you just need to... You just need to get it out, right? You just need someone to listen, but then you also just need someone who can speak truth into your life. Because when things are tough, when, when, the, thing, when the going gets tough, uh, we, we don't think right. I don't know if you've ever been there, but we, we start thinking weird things about God that we normally wouldn't, right? We start to question His character, His goodness, why would God allow this, that, that sort of thing. And so godly friends help us, help to lift us up out of that mire and point us back to Christ and His goodness. But uh, verse 5 tells us, eventually Silas and Timothy come from Macedonia. Paul is then able to fully devote himself to the Word, to teaching and preaching and sharing the Gospel. And this is no doubt due in part to the refreshing uh, financial gift of the Philippians. And he, that's mentioned in Philippians 4.15. Uh, they gave more than once to support Paul, and Paul had no problem working. He had... He, He's a good Jewish boy. You know, he was, he was raised to work hard. And if you don't work, like he said to the Thessalonians, you don't eat. But he also said a minister is worthy of his wages for preaching the gospel, right? So he preferred to minister the gospel full time. And that's what this gift allowed him to do. Um, when he was at Corinth, he would also write letters to the Thessalonians and he would continue to minister to the Jewish community, where we pick it up in verse 6, many of them turn on him. It says, But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am 
clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And then he left there, and look how far he goes. He went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. He says, I'm leaving, and he goes next door. Right? Uh, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul, in the night, by a vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So much of the Jewish community uh, turns on Paul, and they, they've heard the message, they've rejected it, and so it says he turns to the Gentiles here as a prophetic uh, symbolic gesture, he, he shakes out his garments. And this kind of goes back to the, the book of Ezekiel. You remember this? Uh, Ezekiel was to be a watchman for Israel. He was to preach the truth, and, and uh, basically all the responsibility would be on them to receive it, basically, or reject it. Um, he's done his job to share the gospel, and they are now responsible for not heeding the warning. As God's witnesses, we can think of ourselves as true watchmen. Watchmen. And that, that whole idea has just kind of been marred, hasn't it, these days by the Jehovah's Witnesses who have the Watchtower magazine. That's their thing. But uh, we're the true watchmen who have, have received Jesus Christ and are responsible to tell others about Him. So that's what's going on there. But after turning from them, he doesn't go far from the synagogue. Actually, it's just next door to the house of Titius Justice. And uh, many people are getting saved. The Lord's working there. And I can imagine there's just like, you know, they're getting baptized. There's praise going on next door. That had to be really awkward for the synagogue. Um, even Crispus, this, his name just reminds me of a cereal. Um, <laughs> Crispos would be the Greek. I prefer that. But uh, uh, I don't know why I said that. It's been in my mind all week, and we've just bought Crispex at Walmart. So um, anyway, the leader of the synagogue, his family, the, his whole family saved. They believe. And so there's just this reoccurring theme in the book of Acts. Like a broken record, uh, the point is made over and over and over through the book of Acts that you cannot stop the advancement of the gospel. You cannot stop it. You can't stop the church from growing. And, and it's like the harder you try, the more it just gains traction. Because <laughs> why? Why? Because God is superintending everything. And he's using it. He's guiding the advancement of the gospel just as he is today. Amen? However, that doesn't mean it's not hard at sometimes, right? Because so, like, look, at, look at Paul. Paul's emotions here. There's a reason God has to say, don't be afraid any longer to Paul. Because Paul was experiencing some fear that might have been holding him back in his witness. Do we let fear hold us back in our witness? Is there a fear that keeps our mouth shut from sharing Christ? Absolutely. Paul, Paul experienced that. And so God has to tell him, don't fear I'm with you. There's three promises that God makes to him. I'm with you, number one. Doesn't that remind you of the Great Commission? I'm with you always. 
Uh, I'm with you. Number two, you will not be harmed. And number three, I have many people in this city. In other words, keep sharing the gospel, Paul. Don't move on. Don't go to the next city. Keep sharing. Stay here and share. And I'll, and I'll bless your labor. So that's a great lesson here for us, I think. When, when things get tough, when the going gets tough, remember God's promises. Because no matter what we go through, we know God doesn't leave us. He doesn't forsake us. We know that He's always with us, working things for good. Just because things get tough doesn't mean God doesn't love us. God is there. He's using it. He's present with us. And what do we need to do? We need to trust God and obey Him and let Him use it for His glory. This vision, though, prompts Paul to stay here for at least 18 months. Uh, This is his first long stay on a missionary journey. First long stay. Um, normally, Paul would have moved on. We've, we've been following Paul, right? If he goes to the Jews, gets rejected, he ministers to the Gentiles and for a little bit, and he just moves on. But God intervenes this time, and he says, Paul, no, you're not moving on this time. You're going to stay, and you're going to face this difficulty, but know this, I'm with you, and I'll protect you. So think of this. For the first time, the Lord requires a drastic change in Paul's methodology, in Paul's pattern. He has to settle down in Corinth. Why? Because God sees it differently than he does. God has a different perspective. When Paul can maybe only see the difficulty, God sees a fruitful ministry. God sees what's going to happen. And again, I don't want to keep over-psychoanalyzing over Paul here, but I think Paul may have had some sort of recommissioning moment here in his, in his walk with the Lord. I, I think he was just having a time where he said, you know what, I have to, I've got to put a stake in the ground. I've got to recommit myself. Because the fear was getting to him. The difficulties were getting to him. And I think Paul wanted to move on. I don't, I don't think he enjoyed Corinth. I think the immorality that was going on there tormented him. And I think he was tired. I think he wanted to go home, but he humbled himself. And as we're going to see, it's, he took a vow. He took a vow that he wouldn't quit here. He was going to stick it out, and he was going to press on in the heavenward call that God had called him to in Christ. And God revealing his perspective, I wish God would do that with all of us, right? But God revealed his perspective to Paul, and that sure helped him stick it out. And so when things get tough, let's, let's ask God for, for his perspective. Let's do that. Let's continue on in verse 12. But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, the Bema seat, saying, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names in your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge in these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat, and they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, new leader of the synagogue, right? And began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. He basically turns a blind eye to it. 
So when it comes to New Testament chronology, Gallio's time in Corinth is very brief, but it's very certain. It's a linchpin in New Testament chronology, and we understand what year this was. This was uh, in the years eight, uh, 51 to 52 AD. So the church is about 19 years old um, at this point since Pentecost. And the Jews essentially uh, take Paul to court before Gallio, and Gallio sits on the Bema seat. And there's an actual picture of it. You can go put your hand on it today. Uh, now, sometimes we talk about the Bema seat of Christ, right? The judgment seat of Christ. In fact, Paul uses this word uh, in 1 Corinthians 3 to refer to the moment when we're going to stand before the Bema seat of Christ. We're going to stand before the great judge who's going to judge our works, right? Every Christian is going to be saved, but not every Christian is going to receive the same rewards. So we have different rewards based on how we lived in this life and our works. Were they, were they biblical and have proper motivation or not? And so some of our works are going to burn up. They're going to be like wood and hay and stubble, and some are going to be gold and silver and precious stones. And so that's a, a great encouragement to us to be um, be. Be faithful now because it matters in eternity. And uh, I can't think of a, I don't know, I can't think of a better, uh, another better principle, again, for when things get tough. When things get tough, do we only see the temporal and what we're going through now? Or are we looking to eternity? How is God going to use this for His eternal glory? So you have to live for the eternal, especially when things get tough. You have to see beyond your circumstances and ask God, how are you going to use this? It's not, it's, it's not, I don't like it. I don't like what I'm going through. I want it to end. I want this fish bone to come out of my throat, right, <laughs> like last night. But I sat there thinking with that fish bone caught in my throat, maybe God wants another preacher today. You know, I don't know how God's going to use this. And so um, just think about that. Think about God's perspective when you're going through tough times. Live for the eternal. Today, you can go, again, you can put your hand on this Bema seat where Paul makes his defense, and that's probably what Paul did. And as soon as he went to make his defense, he's cut short. Gallio doesn't even let Paul give a defense. He's, he basically just writes it off, and he says, I don't want anything to do with this. All right, I'm not a Jew. This is within your law. Just get out of here, basically. And he turns a blind eye to the whole situation. And... Uh, at first, he seems kind of respectable here. Like, this was a guy, this is a guy I'd vote for, a guy who keeps his hand out of the affairs of the church, right? Keeps his hand out of the affairs of the church. Uh, and then he turns a blind eye to the beating of Sosthenes, and, which affirms for us the historical analysis of this, this fella, that he was uh, anti-Semitic, uh, anti-Jewish, basically. But note this, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 mentions Get this, a guy named Sosthenes. Paul called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. Is this the same guy? We don't know. We could speculate that, uh, at least I'd like to speculate a little bit, that after Sosthenes was beaten, the Christians uh, had quite the care ministry to this guy. And they took care of him. And he was one to Christ. But uh, that's just a thought. But that makes two synagogue rulers one to Christ. If, the, if, if, if this is true. If that's the same Sosthenes. 
But next, let's look at the layover in Ephesus. Remember, he had a long stay in Corinth where there's a lot of difficulty. And then he has a layover in Ephesus, a place that's very welcome to him. Um, Paul, having remained many days longer, verse 18, took leave of the brethren, put out to sea for Syria, and with him were Priscilla and Aquila. In Centria he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews, and when they asked him to stay for a while longer, he did not consent. But taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills, he set sail from Ephesus. And when he landed at Caesarea, uh, that's Caesarea Maritima on the coast, he went up and he greeted the church, probably at Jerusalem, and then he went down to Antioch. That would be Syria, his sending church, uh, closer to Turkey. So many days following uh, the Bema seat, Paul decides he's going to return home to Syria, taking, taking with him Aquila and Priscilla, and he goes to Centria here on the coast, uh, port city on the east side of Corinth, and it's here that he has his haircut because it says he's keeping a vow. And Stephen Gurr said the nature of this particular vow has generated a tremendous volume of speculation. Uh, we don't know exactly what this vow was because we just don't have enough information. Apparently God decided we didn't need that. Okay? And so we should accept it. But it does seem very close to a Nazarite vow from the Old Testament law where one would abstain from alcohol and uncleanness so as to present oneself exclusively to the Lord to accomplish some sort of divine objective or divine purpose. You guys remember Samson, right? He didn't, had, couldn't cut his hair. Couldn't, well, he didn't exactly keep his vow, did he? But um, this, this sort of vow that he was taking would have been expressing complete devotion to the Lord. Uh, we may think that's weird, that he would follow some sort of old Mosaic law, uh, vow. But remember, freedom from the law must also entail the freedom to keep it or not. Or else it's not true freedom, right? If you want to keep Passover, that's fine. Who cares, right? It's Just don't force it on anybody else. You know, so uh, during such a vow, you would, you would not cut your hair, kind of like Samson. And when the vow was complete, then you would cut it off and you would offer it at the temple in Jerusalem as a sort of thanksgiving burnt offering. And that's where Paul was headed, right? And so uh, it kind of adds to why he didn't stay in Ephesus long. He had a vow to keep. And uh, this is also something that a sailor would have done. Remember, there's a lot of sailors coming and going through here. They probably had clippers there ready for him. Because after a long, hard journey, a sailor would often cut their hair like this, too. They would cut it all off. And uh, here's Paul finishing a long, hard journey, too. But when they arrive at Ephesus, uh, Paul reasons in the synagogue. They want him to stay, but he says, again, I need to move on. And we'll talk more about Ephesus next time, Lord willing, uh, because this is going to become a strategic long stay for him as well and in his third missionary journey. But I find it interesting again, the irony, or the, the, the unexpectedness here of here Paul's going to stay a long time in a place where there's a lot of hardship. And he goes to Ephesus, and they say, stay, you're very welcome. And he says, I'm sorry, i got to move on. I mean, it doesn't make sense to us, not from our perspective, but it does in God's perspective. God, remember, he's the one leading and guiding Paul. And uh, Paul says, I'm going to return to you if the Lord wills. 
if the Lord wills. And I think that's the heart of the passage here. If the Lord wills. Lord willing was a common Jewish expression that every Christian ought to adopt for their life, especially when, it, when the going gets tough. Because when the going gets tough, what do we want? We want our will to be done, don't we? We fight for our will. We're praying for our will. Remember what James said in James chapter 4? He said, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit, yet you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a, a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we'll live and do this or that. Everything we do, uh, everything we pray should be filtered through this, Lord willing. I'm going to pray. I'm going through a hard time. I'm going to pray. I'm going to make my, my desires known to God. Are we not going to pray for healing? Are we not going to pray for different things that we want? But at the end of the day, we capstone it with this, Lord, your will be done. We pray all these things according to God's will. And when things get tough, this is just what we need to do. This is what Jesus taught us to do, didn't he? Jesus said, Father, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what your will be done. That's what Jesus did, and he finished the race well, and that's what Paul did too. I think Paul had a moment there in Corinth where he said, not my will, but your will be done. And as we come to communion this morning, I'm not saying take a vow. I'm very leery of my own ability to keep a vow. I've done that sort of thing in the past. (laughs) Um, but maybe you do need some sort of stake-in-the-ground moment this morning, a recommissioning moment, a recommittal of your life to the Lord. Because I know I, I need that every now and then. And I think Paul was human enough to need that too, just, just to sit down with the Lord and just say, Lord, I'm going to recommit myself to you. I, I, I'm going to finish the race. I want to keep running. I'm going to keep disciplining my body. I'm going to keep depending on your grace to do what you have called me to do. Resolve to follow him. Ask God for his perspective as you sit there and contemplate. And maybe, maybe some of us just need to present ourselves to the Lord for the first time this morning. We, we've, we've come to God. We've come to church several times. Maybe we've believed and we say, I'm a Christian, but honest. To, to God, we've never actually surrendered our life to Him and said, Lord, Your will be done in my life. Lord, show me what You would have me do. You're the one who created me. You created me on purpose for a purpose. And show me what Your will is for my life. So I'd encourage you to do that this morning as we take communion.